Welcome to the latest edition of Silver Screen Visions, the podcast within Let Me Tell You Something's anthology of shows, in which myself, your Let Me Tell You Something co-host Lorcan Mullen, and on the aisle opposite me, your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Simon Cross, discuss a film, a TV show, maybe something else in the future, some form of media in which pro wrestling is either the main component or a key background component to the story being told and the setting of the story and the characters being uh, covered and portrayed within that medium. We're going for probably the most obvious thing to go for. Maybe it should have been our first one in hindsight, but I held off until 2023. I mean, of all the five and zero anniversaries, it's probably the least significant one until you reach 35. I don't know. Well, if you're Mexican, obviously. I was going to say, if you're a Mexican girl. (laughs) Yeah. What film are we talking about today, Simon? We are talking about The Wrestler. Some more work. All I got is weekends. Isn't that when you sit on other dudes' faces? Have you ever seen a one legged dog? Have a beer with me? <laughs> one beer. Can you have a daughter? Oh, my daughter, she don't like me very much. You should call her. What do you want from me? I'm an old, broken down piece of meat, and I deserve to be all alone. I just don't want you to hate me. You seen me, but I Two words. Three. Match. Bring it. You know, with a little luck, this could be my ticket back on top. Tell me, friend, can you ask for anything? 80s man, best ever. Guns and Roses. Crew. Yeah, then that Cobain had to come around and ruin it all. <laughs> 90 sucked. 90 sucked. These things that have comforted me, I drive away. My only faith's in the broken bones and bruises I display. You know, the only place I get hurt is out there. I'm really here. This life, you lose everything you love, everything that loves you. A lot of people told me that I'd never wrestle again. The only one who's going to tell me when I'm through doing my thing is you people here. That'll work. Come here. (laughs) Starring Mickey Rourke, 
Yeah. Uh, Marissa Tomei. Yes. Both Oscar nominated for their performances in this film. And directed by Darren Aronofsky. So, Simon, for me, this was a film I'd already seen. It Was that the same for you, or was this a first-time viewing? First-time viewing. So, a little bit of background into my life. that I was meant to watch this film a lot earlier. So, when I was uh, in, the, in my third year of university, we had a practical journalism module where we did, like, a men's magazine for our, like, magazine projects. Not like we tried, we deliberately didn't do anything like nuts or zoo or, or tip based. I was going to say, was this just an excuse to try and get any female student to get involved? <laughs> no. <laughs> was that at the peak of the nuts zoo era? Ah, uh, no, no. I think nuts and zoos like apex would be the mid noughties so i was doing yeah. this towards the tail end of the noughties so yeah you were doing it for a magazine but what it fell through or no no this was back when netflix sent out actual discs in the really early days of netflix and it because it was oscar nominated i was asked to for, for our oscars section my my original brief to, to contribute to that because that was going to be like a big staple of our magazine was to watch the wrestler but the DVD crapped out after about 10 minutes. So the only thing I'd seen before is, in t- is up until the first time Mickey Rourke's character, Randy the Ram, and Marissa Tomei's character, who we only know then as Cassidy, meet. And that's all I'd seen up to before the DVD stopped working. So you'd seen him in the first match and him blading himself. Yeah. So, obviously, this was a film I had really mixed feelings going into. Two of my big loves in life are wrestling and movies. Cue the Ricky Gervais hands together meme right here. I'd always thought there are some great stories to be made about wrestling as a movie subject. It seems like more and more people are starting to become aware to something that people who are like us, you know, smart wrestling fans, not as in intellectual, but just smartened up to the business, aware of the backstage shenanigans maybe not knowing what actually happens but hearing what some people said happen and the legends of these guys starts to realize not only is wrestling a really entertaining medium that cannot really be duplicated by anything else in in this world not films can't give you the same enjoyment that wrestling does nor can sports but like a weird but it's a weird merger of the two Mm. theater and everything and so it was like if people just knew there's so many great stories that could be made into movies and, and or like a TV series. You know, I always thought you could do a great HBO drama set in the territory or a, or even like an ECW-like promotion. Ultimately, this, the one that we got was Glut mm. and, to a lesser extent, Heels. And that's slightly different, but still, you know, that was, I think, was Glow the first thing we did for Silver Screen Visions? Whatever it is, it's the, it's the best thing we've covered for Silver Screen Visions so far. And I include this movie in there but we'll get to that later yeah but whilst i was super excited at the notion of seeing a film taking wrestling as a subject matter seriously what filled me with dread was that it was directed by darren aronofsky who at that point in like 2007 ish times was probably my least favorite director working i've seen all but two of aronofsky's films at this point I've never seen Pi, which was his first ultra-low-budget film. Mm-hmm. A24 re-released it, but I think they must have only done it in American cinemas on March the 14th, Pi Day. 
Oh, yeah. Maybe, maybe one day they'll do that in the UK as well, or one of the sort of local indie cinemas will do something along those lines. Although for us, the way our calendar works, it doesn't really work as a joke. No. Unless we suddenly get 14 months out of ourselves. But that's some, like, George Orwell shit. (laughs) I I remember watching Requiem for a Dream. I must have taken it out of the video store when I was at uni. Third year at uni. And thinking it was the most pretentious, over-directed, sensory nonsense that was so overrated. I could not believe that there were people out there that thought that this was a better film than Train Spotting, mm. which is the other stylish depiction around that period of time of Key struggling with their vices. Yeah. And I thought it was gimmicky, I thought it was shallow, I thought it was a director forcing their fingerprints over every single frame of that movie and not allowing it to breathe. Mm. To this day, I've never rewatched it because I hated it that much. I actually have a Blu-ray of it staring at me at this moment on in the in my room that I'm recording this in. So I guess at some point I should rewatch it, but it's going to be tough. Mm. Not least because whilst, as I'll explain later on, my distaste for Darren Aronofsky has abated, the lead in that movie is still Jared Leto, wow. and nothing's gonna ever. Get me to dis to stop disliking Jared Leto. Yeah, but Aronofsky did it, and he did it with the wrestler. Because when I first heard Darren Aronofsky is making a movie about a wrestler who comes out of retirement to wrestle the Sheik in a rematch of their mat thing, and it's going to star Nicolas Cage, it was like fifteen different bells going off at the same time. <laughs> now, I am a fan of Nicolas Cage, and I wasn't anti Nicolas Cage at the time, but Nicolas Cage. Known for his over-the-top bombastic nature. Yeah. Being directed by a guy known for his over-the-top bombastic nature about a sport that to everyone on the outside just sees as an over-the-top bombastic thing and don't know the the more fascinating to me gritty truth and reality underneath that. Yeah. It just sounded like it was going to be the first big wrestling movie of my lifetime. Just didn't seem like it had anyone involved that was the right person for it. Mm. And then I heard Mickey Rourke was going to take over from Nick Cage, which raised some interest in me. Because I knew that he had a background in boxing. And like this is one of those times, everyone loves the story of the comeback narratives. And we'll get more into that because that's something that Aronofsky did again recently, which is another reason why I wanted us to do The Wrestler yeah. this year, along with the 15th anniversary. But I thought, well, he could play a wrestler. Knowing his tough guy image and everything. Yeah. And then when I saw the trailer, I was like, okay, well, this doesn't look like an Aronofsky movie. Mm. He had filmed before in this format, which is 16mm. Pretty much ground-rooted in reality from start to finish. Yeah. There's only a couple of moments where there's some audio cues that are outside of the realm of reality, so you're going into a character's head. Mm -hmm. The score is so minimal that I looked it up on Spotify, and they don't even bother listing it as an album. Yeah. Like, the whole score is just nine minutes, so it's listed as a single oh, okay. on Spotify. There are other songs within it, non-diegetically, that are taking place within the world of the the film, for the most part. Yeah. Well, Randy's Van, or, or a strip club, primarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then I had hope, and, I had, and then the reviews came in, and they were just all, like, going crazy for it. Two days after they locked it for a final edit, it went to Venice and won the bigger award there the golden lion i think the golden lion yeah which i think is something that's put up sometimes the palm door winner and that will have that 
before the film starts. It did on the version of that I watched. Yeah, probably did on mine too. And so then there was all, all the excitement in the world. And then I saw it, really enjoyed it. I didn't put it as my best film of the year, my favourite film of the year. I think it was said that this was the most highly rated film of 2008 on Rotten Tomatoes or something. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean as much. Metacritic's actually a better measurement of how highly praised a film is than Rotten Tomatoes. Because if if a film gets 100% 6 out of 10s, then it's considered 100% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. So, just to give you a today's breakdown, uh, it's 98% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. As of today, with an audience score of 88%. But what's interesting as well, though, with The Wrestler is that it doesn't feel like it's a film that people talk about that much now. It's not a film from 2008 that I think, obviously, you've got, like, The Dark Knights and those sort of films. Yeah, but The Dark Knight had a trilogy. I know, I know, but... And The Dark Knight was the second part of a trilogy, really, as well, wasn't it? <laughs> Yes, and obviously it was a bigger film, but and but so the Dark Knight's probably the wrong one to compare it to. But to say from two thousand and seven, the sort of films you would put this with, where it's a lower budget, but it's a high name director, awards laden, high critical regard, something like No Country for Old Men, or There Will Be Blood, yeah, which came out in two thousand and seven. I don't see it getting talked about in those kind of hallowed terms i mean look i was able to pick up a blu-ray of this from cex for a pound yeah and stuff that cex can sell for a pound on blu-ray is not stuff that's in high demand Mm. i rented this on amazon actually lorkin did tell me locations of local cex's which have the dvd but as i've alluded to already in this episode i've been burnt before with dvds and the wrestler what i was relieved when i rewatched it was that it holds up and i think that the reason it doesn't get talked about that much is partly because the reason this film works more than anything is Mickey Rourke. Mm. And Mickey Rourke kind of so perfectly mirrored Randy the Ram Robinson that he even screwed up his chance at a big comeback. Yeah. And he's back doing the films that Mickey Rourke was doing before The Wrestler happened. Yeah. Now, again, we'll get more into that as time goes on. If I was to give it a rating, because like I said, I'm not... Ratings that I, I don't actually care that much about anymore, saying whether something's good or bad is less important to me. I'm more interested in talking about what it's trying to say and how it tries to say it. Mm. So if you give me a rating, I looked at my letterboxed rating and I just re- and, and I've given it an, a four stars already and I was like, I'm going to stick with that. Okay. So I always... Well, I kind of use the Anthony Fantano system now, which is usually giving it a range of a score which is light decent strong mm. and for me it's a light eight to a strong seven okay but i would go i would go light eight all right but if it was to go anywhere it was to go down and mark rather than go up a mark you know uh that's where i would stand with it and that's pretty much what i thought about it the first time but for a film to hold up is not easy mm. nowadays you know and, and seeing it out of the whole hot glare of mickey rourke's big comeback is this gonna be you know, is he going to get the Oscar? Is he now going to become the big movie star he was again in the 80s? Oh my God, he's been cast in the new Iron Man film. That's a good sign, surely. And then he went off and made the fantabulous captraption of Dr. Horatio Huffnickel. <laughs> That's a very niche joke, and I love it. <laughs> and slightly wrong. I think it's the contrabulous fabtraption. Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. So that was my feeling from a rewatch. You, from watching it really the first time... Yes. What were your feelings towards it? 
I really appreciate it as a film. It's weird for me because it was a film called The Wrestler. And the out of the 10 minutes I'd seen previously, there's a high percentage of wrestling in those 10 minutes. So the preconception I had was obviously, you know, Randy would have his problems. And I, I knew the brief synopsis from everyone talking about it, Oscar time. I didn't realise, for a film called The Wrestler, wrestling's kind of a framing device. It's it's not really the, the actual nub of the story. It's a man dealing with his own failures and shortcomings. He could have been a number of other things. He could have been a fading rock star. Yeah. He could have been a great sportsman. He could have, he could have been what he is, which is a guy who was had the world at his feet... Stunningly beautiful, but with an air of menace and toughness to him. Yeah. Leading man that could star in sexually charged erotic thrillers alongside Kim Basinger mm. and stand toe to toe with Robert De Niro and play hard drinking poet and, and writer Charles Bukowski. That was the stuff he was doing. Yeah. And then he threw it all away and now he's getting it back. That was that was what people were seeing, that wrestling was being used for Mickey Rourke as a means for him to come to terms with his own failings. And that was why he was always Aronofsky's first choice. Obviously, as we said, there was a time when it was announced that it was going to be Nick Cage. And I was also it was curious because one of the things I asked you before this show, before we started recording this episode, was to think of other people that could play Randy the Ram Robinson. Yeah. The only other movie star that I thought could have worked in this role at the time would have been Sylvester Stallone. But he had covered it quite early on with Rocky Balboa and there'd be too much of the Rocky side. Yeah. That would be too... Especially since he famously in Rocky Three has a wrestling match with Hulk Hogan. But that was curious because then when I was looking up for trivia and everything, apparently at one point Aronofsky did think, could we give this to Stallone? Yeah. And... Because it's always it's one of those things like who could do the physical element of it too? Who could get themselves into that kind of shape? Mm. And Nick Cage has claimed because Aronofsky said that he stepped away from the project because he wanted Mickey to do it, and he knew that that was who Aronofsky wanted. And Cage's more cagey reply to that was that it was more that he knew that the character of Randy the Ram was going to take steroids and have that kind of a physique. Yeah. And he said that he knew he couldn't get to that level of physique in the time that they would have to make the movie yeah. without doing something like that, and he would never do something like that. The usage of steroids in Hollywood is very much a hot-button issue at the moment. Yeah. And there'll probably be some pretty revealing stuff come out sometime in the 2030s, I would have thought, <laughs> if not earlier. And it's curious to think about Nick Cage in the role. Because, like I said, I, like, I was worried because he's so can turn things up to 11 as there are many famous memes and videos out there. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I love Nick Cage. I think Nick Cage could have done the role subsequently once watching it with things like... Uh, well, one thing about Nick Cage is they uh, he never really takes advantage of quite how big he is. Mm. He is a deceptively big guy. He's, he's quite tall. And as years have gone on, you know, we all pile on the pounds yeah and if you haven't seen it he did a film a couple of years ago which is my favorite film the year that it came out called pig mm. where he's this brilliant chef 
that suffers some sort of tragedy. Something's happened to him. And he goes off and basically is living as a hermit in the Oregon National Park area. Yeah. And he has, just as a companion, a truffle pig that helps him locate truffles. And that's how he's able to live, by selling on truffles to this guy. Yeah. And then someone else turns up in the middle of the night, attacks him and steals his pig. And then he has to go back into, you assume, Portland to try and find the pig and find the person that did it to him. Yeah. So it's a revenge mission. And in that film, you, you there's moments in it where you just appreciate it. He's a big guy. Yeah. He could, he could be quite intimidating. I used to always think he wouldn't look right for the role, but then I remember what he looked like in Con Air. And what he looked like in Con Air wasn't a million miles away from Randy the Rat. No. You just got to put some more blonde into the hair. Yeah. But I just always thought it was his face. I think one of the reasons that Mickey Rourke's so perfect for the role is because because of his boxing that he gave up acting to go to. Yeah. And then subsequent to that, botched surgeries. He has a face that a wrestler in their 50s would have. Yes. Whereas most Hollywood actors don't. And again, Stallone kind of had that face as well. So that was the only other person that could work with that as well. Yeah. You've seen the clip of the match where Nikolai Volkov is wrestling without a ring in like some high school gym and they've just put some mats down and it's like one of the most tragic things ever because mickey looks so much like a wrestler and because randy's story is so tragic it's just very close because it's so close to real life and as you described he looks like an 80s wrestler it gives an extra layer of authenticity to randy's story there's people that just look right for their roles yeah and that's something that's, that's tough when i was young kid trying to make it as an actor well not i'm trying to make it as an actor but i did as a hobby acting mm. as a child and knowing that you were getting casting roles more for how you looked than any kind of acting ability mm. you know at an early age it makes you so self-aware and obviously it's even worse for like women in in these sort of situations or people of non-white ethnicities it's always tough but sometimes it is true like if someone had been a wrestler and have fallen on hard times and lived that rough life, and they're in their 50s, and they look like Chris Hemsworth, there's not as much tragedy behind it. Yeah. You see the scars of misspent, not youth, but misspent prime, I suppose, in many ways. So Aronofsky's interest in wrestling was curious as well, because it was like, even though he has quite a tough New York kind of working class Sounded voice, he kind of sounds like a taxi driver or someone who would phone into like a, a radio talk show <laughs> about every, the Mets every, every week about the Mets. You know, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly yeah, yeah, what yeah, he yeah. sounds like. What he looks like is a pretentious ass. <laughs> you know, he's worn a. Ver- I think there was a, might have been a Twitter account dedicated to him in various scarves. Brilliant. I think that might be a thing. <laughs> <laughs> that that sums it all up, really, doesn't it? There, yeah. And, like I said, Requiem for a Dream just to me was so pretentious. His follow-up, The Fountain, equally pretentious. His cards marked for you prior to the rest. It was, yeah. But what I've kind of come to appreciate now when I watch his films is that he goes for it. I think because ever since then, like, so many films are so bland and boring as shit that someone who just does something weird or different or so specifically them... Yeah. I think I give them more time and give them a better chance because it's like, well, you know, no one else is making this kind of film. You know, like Wes Anderson or David Lynch mm. or Baz Luhrmann. You know, those sort of... That's why, you know, like, 
if you watch the Elvis film and you don't have any time for Baz Luhrmann's style of filmmaking, or you're just, or you're not even aware of Baz Luhrmann as a director or what that means, yeah, I can understand entirely why you would hate Elvis. Yeah, but I think if you go into it knowing what Baz Luhrmann's giving you, you've got like the right sort of criteria to judge it by, I suppose. And now, and since I kind of know Aronofsky's thing is just like fuck subtlety i'm gonna tell you what it's about and i'm gonna be loud and stuff's gonna happen <laughs> tell <laughs> tell and show don't tell yeah. basically is what you're saying tell and tell <laughs> maybe some show oh well, there's a lot of show too it's like show and tell in very big capital letters and so since then you know films like mother and black swan have gone there yeah, and the rest, but what I think was what I appreciated with the wrestler was like, oh well, he can do something else. Aronofsky didn't have to Aronofskyfy this film. Yeah, he knew this was the right story and this was the right way to make it by doing it kind of almost not documentary style, but in a style that makes you think of documentary. There is an earthy sort of grittiness to the film, which which gives it a sense of realism. Well, that's also in the decision to go with 16mm film, because that mm. makes it a lot more grainy. Yeah. And so it brings more of attention to it, like, being a bit more cheaper and, and rustic, but also capturing... Because oftentimes people at home have, like, 16mm yeah. film. You know, it's like home film stock or yeah. Super 8, you know? 35mm and 70mm is when it gets all classy. But if you want to have something with more of an indie, down-and-dirty feel to it... And you can carry the handheld cameras, which is what they did the whole film in. Yeah. It's in handheld cameras. You know, this is not David Fincher, Stanley Kubrick locked, set in place like an like a painting. This ain't no nineteen sixteen. Or nineteen seventeen, sorry. Yeah. Whereas with uh, this film, it was like, well, I think, because I think the key reason this film was made, and I'm, I would not be surprised if the main reason that Aronofsky made it was after watching Beyond the Mats. Yeah. And Beyond the Mat is the key reference point. And we are going to do Beyond the Mat, but I was planning to do that in 2024, because then that will be the 25th anniversary. But if you were to do a two-hander, it would have been a good idea to do Beyond the Mat and then do this as the follow-up. Yeah. Because you can kind of see this, the real-life story and then the people that take that as an inspiration. Mm. And apparently when Aronofsky hired the screenwriter who wrote this, who was a guy who wrote for The Onion for years, it was like a top guy, but he gave it up to try and make it as a Hollywood screenwriter. And the first script he did, which I think is a film you might like, I haven't seen it, but it always seemed interesting and it got like a lot of people talking, was a script called Big Fan about a guy who phones into sports shows every day every night doing his dull night job yeah talking about his favorite nfl team what's his name the guy who did the voice of remy and ratatouille Patton oswald oh, okay yeah yeah plays that guy who's obviously more into like nerdy stuff but he's able to transfer that to the sports elements of it yeah and one of his favorite players ends up like he ends up meeting him and they get in some sort of situation where the guy ends up hurting him and then he kind of becomes like a weird... I don't I don't know exactly it. And there's also a Robert De Niro, Wesley Snipes film called The Fan that is also along this sort of line. Right. So I, I don't want to say too much, but it's like a, it's, it's, it's a weird parasocial relationship right, right, right. that Oswald develops with this guy. Yeah. And so that's what Aronofsky probably saw. Someone who can take a sports story but make it relatable outside of the sporting world. So let's bring him into wrestling. And apparently one of the things that he gave him was the Beyond the Mat documentary. Ah. Which also has a graininess to it because of the, like, the filming techniques of the time. Well, it was also being 
film documentary style, so and kind of on the fly for like three years. I think the guy was doing it for it was kind of almost like just he was it was because he was like Eddie Murphy's main writer. That we'll talk about this more in the Beyond the Mat days. So he was probably set for life, and this was just him following a lifelong fascination and kind of being allowed to make whatever he wanted to make. Yeah, and what he wanted to make was a documentary about wrestling. And well, more specifically, wrestlers. Mm. Like the French brothers who ended up making a really good 9-11 documentary, but they never said, mm. obviously, they, how could they? They never knew they were going to make a 9-11 documentary. Well, so many of the great documentaries kind of fall into their lap. I got to see Beyond the Mat at the cinema. And again, it was just another one of those things. It was like, God, this would make such a good movie. Yeah. Like, these guys would make such great movies because the main three people that you follow in Beyond the Mat are Terry Funk, Mick Foley, and... Uh, Jake the Snake Roberts. There's also a little detour with New Jack at one point. And that's a lot of fun too. And I think you can definitely see elements. And and Aronofsky had also had memories of going to watch wrestling as a kid. He said he went to Madison Square Garden. And he at least went to one show. He might have gone to more than one show. But the key thing he always said was, which is probably another sign that how little he followed wrestling. He says, when I watched it, Hulk Hogan was a bad guy. Yeah. And this was before. So this was like his first WWF run when he was feuding with Andre the Giant and they were the semi-main event of the Shea Stadium show. So yeah. that's around the time he would have been there, 1982, 81. And I was looking up on Cage Match. I don't have it up with me. But he was saying that the match he watched, because there's a great little 40-minute behind-the-scenes documentary mm. on the Blu-ray that I got for a pound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... He was talking about, in that match, Hogan was wrestling Tony Atlas. Oh, okay. And I just looked up on the card, and also Bob Backlund defended the world title against Stan Hansen. And Andre the Giant was on the card as well. I can't remember who he was against. Mm-hmm. So, it was, you know, you standard 1980-182. I think Sergeant Slaughter's in it as well. Okay. That, that was that thing. He was like, he was fascinated by it, but now seeing where it had gone from there. And if you watch the documentary, there's clearly... There's moments in it that very much mirror Jake the Snake's story. Yeah. And there's very much stuff in there that mirrors Terry Funk's story. Mm. But Randy the Ram is very clearly like a conglomerate of many different wrestlers. Yeah. There is not one direct, this is obviously, whilst he's called Randy the Ram, he's really Greg the Hammer Valentine. Or Randy Savage or... Or Jake the Snake Roberts. Yeah. Or whoever. There's none of that. But there are parts of it, like I said... The part with Jake the Snake Roberts is him really just trying to make ends meet, Mm. traveling, and him having an estranged relationship with his daughter because there is a moment in Beyond the Map where he comes to meet one of his daughters and they just can't talk to each other. She um, reads a Sylvia Plath poem. Yeah. Yeah. And with Terry Funk, I think the two most obvious things are... That scene where the doctor's just saying, you need a new knee. Yeah. You should not wrestle ever again. And we know what he did after that. Plus him doing the ECW stuff. Because you could argue that the, the hardcore stuff is also maybe that's a bit of Mick Foley. And yeah, kind of, but not really. Yeah. Mick Foley's definitely a lot more centred. You know, there's a sense when you watch that film, well, Mick Foley's not going to throw it all away. He's got a lovely, he has a healthy relationship with his kids. Mm. <laughs> and and he's, too, he's way too frugal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's where it's more the Jake the Snake and Terry Funk elements to it. But also there's aspects of so many other figures within wrestling. There's some Rowdy Roddy Piper in there. There's Randy Savage in there, especially with his, well, with his name and his move. 
And I was thinking, if there was a closest equivalent that you could say, maybe it's about this guy. You could argue Lex Luger. And it was actually funny, when I was watching the opening credits scene, they've superimposed uh, Mick B. Rourke's face into other images, and they've turned them into versions of magazine covers and, like, Pro Wrestling Illustrated and whatever. I was wondering, who have they put his face over? And I was pretty sure it was Lex Luger, and again... It looks like I was right. Like the physique and the hair, it kind of matches up. Yeah. And Luger similarly, you know, if you've ever seen that clip of him trying to take off a t-shirt in some little indie fed 10 years after he's headlining Madison Square Garden at WrestleMania 10 or co-headlining. Or, you know, body slamming uh, the big evil heel on an actual battleship. So we've kind of covered the similarities that Randy the Ram has with past wrestlers. And I think one of the things that he really does well is convey the charisma that, that it's there. He maybe doesn't have it as much anymore, but it's still there. And also the, just the charm and the ability to win people over, whether it's people at a deli counter or even after screwing up so many times, his uh, daughter. And I was wondering this. Do you think that, and and there's very rare flashes that we see maybe some of that old Randy the Ram who screwed up his life until we get towards it in the last part of the film. Do you think that Randy the Ram is fundamentally a good person? And do you think that he, his downfall that we follow is inevitable or could he at any point in this film pull back and actually live the good life or the... Or made the recovery that he looked like he was at least saying that he was trying to do and seemingly on the first steps towards achieving. You know, literally retiring from wrestling and trying to get more work at the deli, reconnecting with his daughter, and then trying to form a relationship with Marissa Tomei's character. And then really it's her rejection that sort of leads to that downward spiral afterwards. Do you think that's inevitable? Basically, do you think that it's inevitable that he was going to die in the ring? but estranged from his daughter and screwing up any chance of a relationship with Marissa Tomei. To work from the first question forwards, do I think he's fundamentally a good person? Yes, but his flaw is his inability to adapt, which is also his charm, as you as you sort of mentioned in the, in the deli counter scene. You know, that's when he's arguably at his most charming in the film. Or when he's um, dancing for Marissa Tomei's character in the bar when they go out and grab a drink. Those are like two of his like the nicest moments. And it's, you know, he that's him putting on a show for everyone. I, I think he doesn't know how to be anything else except this sort of inflated caricature of, well, his professional wrestling moniker, which was an inflated caricature of himself. And it's his inability to evolve coupled with him not putting a good relationship in place with his daughter and him not saving his money, which I think ultimately do leave, lead him to this um, destined point of like le- literally leaving it all in the ring. I mean, the final shot, you know, as he's clutching his chest and he goes up for the ram jam, that's heavily implied that right, he might not survive hitting it. Well, I think Aronofsky said, like, he dies. And basically Aronofsky said, yeah, in every film I write, the character, the main character is going to die at the end, probably. <laughs> Unless it's based on uh, source material, which was Noah. 
Ah, <laughs> like, okay. That one, no, I think must like to six hundred and fifty. Yeah, he, he's around for a long time. Maronofsky was like, "Well, I'm not wait. I'm not covering that long in my film." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think he is on a rail, basically, and. There is no pulling up from this. I don't know if I'd necessarily call it tailspin because it's implied that if he's going to die, he's going to die on his terms doing what he loved. And he seems genuinely like, if I wouldn't say happy, I'd say sort of at peace. Um, the closest real life equivalent I could think of in wrestling is that Really eerie, in hindsight, um, Ultimate Warrior promo. The Raw after WrestleMania when he got inducted into the Hall of Fame. It, it's someone who's like, okay, all right, this is the last time I'm going to get to do this. I'm here. I'm, I'm, I am the thing that I've always, I grew up dreaming to be and the thing I had the most fun being. And even though there are things outside of this that I love, this thing, this professional wrestling career i have is where i'm most comfortable even if it isn't what it was it's it's where i can truly be myself i guess well i had the sense that it was never wrestling that the ultimate warrior loved it was the ultimate warrior character that he created and obviously him trying to then extend it into comics and the tv show and all these other ideas he didn't grow up being a wrestling fan and he was able to walk away and not be involved actively as a wrestler bar a couple of matches with Orlando Jordan for like uh, 15, 16 years. And I don't, I think, I understand why people have attached a poetic ending to it. I suppose maybe thinking of it in relation to the wrestler. But I always look at it as as flawed, deeply flawed a man as he was and as disgraceful the WWE's use of him as a, a, a totem of greatness after what they'd done before, and also the behaviour of Warrior himself to anyone that's listened to anything he said or did, and also just undoing what he wanted this Warrior award to be until this most recent WrestleMania. It's, it's adding a poetry, because he seemed more than happy for the rest of his life now to be a father and a maybe a husband. I mean, there's been differing opinions of that. But at the very least, you know, him coming out with his daughters, that's the thing, he left behind two kids. So us attaching that poignancy like with Randy the Ram is one of those things where we try to attach the neat, tight, neat little bow of what art can provide you to real life, which is a lot more complicated. I do think, though, that that also Randy the Ram is another good comparison to The Ultimate Warrior because is it his love of wrestling or is it his own love of adulation and that he's ultimately quite a selfish character that doesn't now being selfish doesn't necessarily make you evil but it can make you deeply flawed and someone that does bad deeds without necessarily knowing it my question is does he go out and get drunk and get high and sleep with that random fireman fetish woman because he kind of wants to build an excuse for why he doesn't see his daughter do I think he's building an excuse? I mean, I don't think he is consciously. I think on a subconscious level, he's self-sabotaging because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, he does. there's a really great scene which sums up his relationship with like himself as a person. And it's when he goes onto the deli counter and that boss uh, gives him a name tag. And it says his actual birth name, uh, for like government name, so to speak, Robin. And he's like, 
oh, they don't have Randy. And the guy's just like, oh, just, just, just wear it. And I can't remember if it's then or I can't remember if it's after he walks out on the deli counter. But he just says, I don't want to be Robin. He's never wanted to be himself because he's more comfortable being Randy. And that's why I think if it, there is self-sabotage, I, I don't think it's conscious. But I think I think there's a good case for him to be a self-sabotager in um, going on that binge. Yeah. Yeah. Because I also think one very telling aspect of this story is that because he's a wrestler instead of him being a an older boxer if you're a failed boxer at that level you're you're losing your fights you're failing in everything you're taking beatings yeah every match that we see randy the ram wrestle he wins all of them Mm. even literally he might be lying dead on top of the ayatollah in that final scene and he still wins that match. <laughs> Ayatollah has to put over a dead guy. Yeah. Because that's how much of a worker he is. So I was thinking, if you were to give it... What would have been an interesting way of really exploring that aspect of his character? And This is fantasy booking, essentially, so it's redundant. But what would be fascinating if you were to do a longer story or, or focus of it more... Put more of the wrestling in it as, a, as part of the character's portrayal? would have been, say, he does a second show at the first place he goes, and maybe the promoter asks him to put over the guy that put him over the previous show, who's all kind of clearly trying to hold in the fanboying aspect of getting to work with Randy (laughs) Ram in his own separate locker room. Yeah. And him asking him to put him over, and would Randy agree to it or not? Although, to be fair... In the scene where he's playing the computer game, he does tell the kid to come back and have a rematch so that, I guess, the implication is so he can let the other kid win it, get his win back or something. Yeah. But maybe he's all right with losing at computer games more. I think that's more because he, he he's, he's lonely at that point as well. Yeah. Um, le- more, less so than, like, you know, letting, him get, letting the kid get his shine back, his heat back, so mm. to speak. I do love that, again, it's one of those things, it's like, is it because he's a good guy that even though he's in pain and everything, he still puts on a show for the kids in the trailer park who are clearly all, obviously having rough lives, but they get literally have a pro wrestler living in their, you know, their area. Yeah. So they're very excited to see him. I think that's a wonderful scene as well. But again, is that, is the only reason he's behaving like that is because they love him. And, you know, obviously there's the scene where he's sitting in the, the hall with the other old timers and with his VHS tape <laughs> and just the yeah. same. I've always felt like if I'd have become famous for whatever reason in something that would require that has conventions as part of the circuit, I don't think I could have brought myself to ever be a part of that world. I just <laughs> and I've been to them and I just find them I just feel really bad when I walk past someone who's there literally selling themselves and I'm not buying. Yeah, it's, it's it's a weird world, the convention world. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know if it's for me really either, to be honest. One of the things I was just thinking about when you said like, oh, if they were going to add another match, initially I don't know why in my head, but maybe it was like um, have like the Ayatollah win one by cheating, so they could create like a little mini series <laughs> and sell like more tickets, kind of thing. That that's just I guess the fantasy booker in me. Uh, I kind of want to focus on the Ayatollah a little bit. Mm. Uh, just how he like works as a uh, complete contrast to Randy. Yeah. 
And there's one line that really sticks out for me is when they, and they're in the early stages when they're in the ring, he just goes to Randy, I completely forgot how fun this was. Mm. So there's a man who can separate his life in the ring from what he did next. Like he's, he's mm. trying to sell Nigel McGuinness a pink car. Yeah. Like not five minutes earlier yeah. in, in the movie. You know, there, there's a man who's not let his wrestler alter ego consume him, unlike Randy. I guess that's why Randy's on this, uh, like I like I alluded to earlier, this this sort of semi-fixed path, mm. because Randy's Robin's been eaten by Randy a long, long time ago. Mm. It might still be there in like little dribs and drabs, but Randy's so much in charge that he literally doesn't want to be Robin, even though he knows that's who he is on some level. Well, Robin's trying to come out of him. Essentially, Robin's a human being that gets hurt and ages and is weary and can have a heart attack. Randy the Ram can't have a heart attack. Yeah. In a way, it's kind of an inverse of the Heisenberg that's always been within Walter White. Yeah. That has gradually been consuming him. But they've always been the same person in a way. And obviously they are the same person because Robin's the guy whose heart is failing on him when he's trying to be the ultimate superhero 20 years past his prime. And I think that you've got that right. Maybe they could have explored that more with the Ayatollah outside of just that brief match where you just... There's enough there that you get it. This is a guy with a sense of perspective. This is a guy who found a way to prosper outside of wrestling. And this is a guy with a certain amount of comfort and just enjoying himself and just... He seems happy outside of wrestling and he's just doing this for the heck of it. Whereas Randy's still, you know, probably, like you say, he's probably the first time he's done this in years. Whereas Randy's still doing every weekend show that he can in increasingly smaller venues. And maybe that's also because, as I say, what Randy's addicted to is the adulation that he gets cheered for what he does. Whereas the Ayatollah spent years being booed. So in order for you to have a healthy lifestyle, I suppose you've got to always separate those two out and say, well, the real me wouldn't get booed for everything that he does. Mm. The real me is very clearly not Iranian. (laughs) And the casting of Ernest Miller is a curious one as well, really, because as far as I'm aware, he's an African-American. Yeah. Uh, uh, But that was kind of a lot of what happened. You know, you had the Italian-American play Muhammad Hassan. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, oftentimes they would cast Hawaiians and other Polynesians as Japanese wrestlers. Yokozuna. <laughs> as is tradition. And the amount of, like, German wrestlers, like, in the 50s that weren't actually German. Yeah, Fritz von Erich. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I, I With the Ayatollah and Randy, I, I, I sort of, like, use this analogy. Whereas the Ayatollahs basically come across wrestling like you know you, you met someone you used to like hang out with a long time ago maybe you kind of had a thing for maybe you didn't maybe it was just like a really good friend from like school and it's like oh i remember this these experiences this is fun it was nice talking to you kind of thing whereas randy's kind of a, an abused partner by wrestling mm. like all, all of his spark and um like life force is being slowly drained by it. Mm. It's a very, very unhealthy relationship he has with wrestling. Yeah. Compared to like uh, the Ayatollah's brief dalliance at like a school reunion. It's funny how we're saying, well, Randy the Ram's a little bit of this guy. He's a little bit of that guy. He's uh, some a smidgen of that. You can even see at least aesthetically how he's like that. The Ayatollah's the Iron Sheik. 
<laughs> yeah. He even says, you're doing my move when Randy the Ram tries to do the camel clutch to him. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's good to know there's still like professional pride in the Ayatollah as well. He's just like, nah, come on, if we're doing this, we're doing this properly. <laughs> it does remind me, I think we had the Iron Sheik as our definitive foreign menace. Yeah. So it just it, it resonates to this day. I don't know if the Iron Sheik was on the Madison Square Garden show that Aronofsky went to. I don't know, but it wouldn't be surprised if he did. I find it weird. I don't know how you feel about it. Obviously, with you as well, liking Ring of Honor, like a lot more than I did. I find it weird that this match is happening on a Ring of Honor branded show between the Ayatollah and the Ram. Well, that's, the, that's one of the fundamental weird little, not ironies, but co- not coincidences, but... This if this film hadn't happened, maybe Gabe Sapolsky would have never been fired, and I would have never sort of fallen out of love with Ring of Honor. Mm. It's one of those weird little things because the idea that Ring of Honor would stage what is essentially Sergeant Slaughter versus the Iron Sheik as the main event of mm-hmm. one of their biggest shows—that's really going against the Ring of Honor creed. Yeah. But I think it was just basically, this is the most high-profile wrestling show that can work within the world that Randy the Ram is operating in now. That's true. And they did glam it up. It was like these shows, the CZW1, but particularly this Ring of Honor show, were real like uh, co-productions between the promotion and Aronofsky because those were real fans there in the crowd that paid to come see. Yeah. And they put on a show during the two days that they were filming it and then they would... In between matches, they'd come in and out and do little segments. And at one point, they had Randy the Ram doing his speech, and some of the fans were, like, heckling him. Oh, dear. And then Aronofsky was like, we need you to be loving everything that he's saying. Yeah. And then so then the fans started chanting, we fucked up, we fucked <laughs> up. I've also seen a really cool clip in the, the making of documentary that they all take it in turns in the production team to try and dive over the top rope to the outside. The first one you see doing it is Aronofsky, and he's going head first, and it's quite scary until you realise there are crash mats underneath yeah. that they landed on. But you didn't see that until the landing. Uh, it was, yeah, you could tell, everyone just has a bit of... Everyone wants to have a little bit of fun with it, I suppose. Aronofsky was appalled at how badly he did and insisted he had to do it again. Take two. (laughs) Classic director. And actually, that's a funny funny coincidence, actually. With that, apparently, the dance that Marissa Tomei does before she kind of packs it in and goes to try and reconcile with Randy, apparently Aronofsky made her do that 36 times. That took 36 takes. Jesus. Like I said, I'm more I'm softer on Aronofsky now. But sometimes I do suspect a lot of art house filmmakers, just like so many men, what they're ultimately doing is any way to meet a girl or to get a girl to do something. <laughs> you know, and there's really ugly ones, like the director who was apparently awful to the two women on the set of Blue is the Warmest Colour, mm. which is a les- lesbian love scene, and they had a very long... And relative, you know, for what it was, explicit sex scene. And it goes on for a long time. And apparently it was a very uncomfortable experience for the women making it. Oh. And I do sort of wonder, has Aronofsky made all these films, built this reputation, worked so hard to get funding, all of these things, got made films for festivals, all so that he can get to watch Marissa Tomei do a dance for 36 takes and get to watch Natalie Portman and Mila Kunis 
have a sex scene together and it's okay because it's art. Mm. And have Jennifer Lawrence walk around a house for a whole film in like a see-through white dress because it's art, you know? Yeah, yeah. You can't help but... But, like, one of the reasons Aronofsky continues to get work as much as anything is, one, the Black Swan, his follow-up to this, and a lot of people did see it as kind of two sides of the same coin, although that was set in a high-class society of, you know, ballet. And whereas... Yeah. Whereas the wrestler was all gritty realism the black swan was a psychological horror with fantasy sequences and violence and scares and all sorts Mm. of stuff. My aunt went to see it thinking it was just going to be a movie about a ballerina. (laughs) It it was not a pleasant experience, but that, that movie made so much money for an art house movie. It's ridiculous. And that gave Aronofsky carte blanche to make whatever he wanted, which was Noah, which is like I said, the one film of his since pie that i haven't seen i don't know why i just never got around to seeing it uh, but the other film that really related to it for me I, I, have you seen how many aronofsky films have you seen simon is the rest of the only one yeah it's the only one i've seen because the other th- reason that aronofsky continues to get funded is that he gets movie stars and the reason he gets movie stars is because he gets movie stars oscar nominations and even oscars because he got Natalie Portman an Oscar, he got Mickey Rourke an Oscar nomination, and it was very obvious that it was either him or Sean Penn that was going to win it that year. He got, um, I think even Requiem, all the way back to Requiem for a Dream, I think Ellen Burstyn in that got an Oscar nomination. And it's followed up to this day, his last film, The Whale, Brendan Fraser, like Mickey Rourke, his big comeback, he gets the Best Actor Oscar, and just as with the wrestler got Marissa Tomei, a Best Sporting Actress nomination, Hong Chow in that film gets an Oscar nomination for her performance as well. And The Whale... Yep. Uh, the Whale, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because everyone was so happy for Brendan Fraser. But so many people that saw The Whale thought he got the Oscar for the wrong film. There were people that were saying, Brendan Fraser should have got an Oscar for The Mummy ahead of getting it for The Whale. Because, <laughs> <laughs> what? Well... I could kind of see where they're coming from in a weird way. I didn't mind The Whale. I think I gave it a 6 out of 10. But I can also understand why people don't like it. And it's it's as, it's as the most restrained film that Aronofsky's made since The Wrestler. And there are funny parallels. Because it is about a man mm. abusing his body and ultimately working towards a death because he can't reconcile with his estranged wife and daughter who come back. Oh, but, okay, okay. Yeah. The difference is that this that was a chamber... Like, again, it was a character study like The Wrestler where you're following him around and you're kind of seeing the day-to-day functions of someone who's having to do that. Like, with The Wrestler, it's Mickey Raw getting his hair dyed and getting his steroid injections and everything. For Brendan Fraser, he's got, like, special equipment to help him. He's got, like, a walker that then he turns into a wheelchair and how he's yeah. how he manages to wash himself and everything. And similarly, it does end with a very, very dramatic final. And it's the one time where where Aronofsky does let, like, full-on Aronofsky direction come into it. (laughs) Uh, It's a film I would say everyone should watch for their own opinions. Brennan Fraser's performance is worth watching. And I'm glad that Brennan Fraser got the Oscar. And I wonder if what tipped it over for him, because he was in a a tight three-way competition for that tie with Colin Farrell yeah. for Banshees of Inisherin and Austin Butler for Elvis. 
Yeah. And I wonder if what pushed it over for him was the goodwill that he was able to continue to have the general groundswell of public opinion. Because it's pretty clear that Mickey Rourke still had his enemies. Yeah. And so maybe there were plenty of Academy voters that were like, I don't care how good he is in The Wrestler. I'm not having that arsehole go on stage and hold a, <laughs> an, a Best Actor Oscar. Yeah. And that was his last chance. And it's funny as well, like with Brendan Fraser and Mickey Rourke, whilst it is like a daring casting choice by Aronofsky, he didn't pluck them from nowhere. They weren't nowhere at that point. Yeah. Like in the in the two or three years of build up to the wrestler, Mickey Rourke was getting cast in a few things. Probably most famously his true comeback was Marv in the Sin City movie. Mm. And that's really the only relatively big film he's done sort of post Iron Man 2. And The Expendables was his return in the Sin City sequel. I'm sure half the people who even saw that film forgot it happened. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he'd also been cast in Domino, a Tony Scott film with Keira Knightley. So he wasn't coming from nowhere. And Brendan Fraser, similarly, he's been in Doom Patrol. Uh, he had been cast in Has Film, that Scorsese film that's now coming out this year. But it is curious how he gets, he finds the right person for the right role. Because Brendan Fraser has a fundamental sadness and sweetness and frailty to him that works for the the whale. Similarly, Mickey Rourke has that, had the look, and he was the only person that could play Randy the Ram Robinson, really, that was a movie star. Yeah. But that does bring me to the question that I did ask you ahead of time, which was, we've already talked who else could have been cast in it as a movie star. And we said, you could have done it with Cage. Don't think it would have worked. You could have done it with Stallone. Don't think it would have worked as much. Well, three parts to it then, I guess. If you'd have cast it in 2008, and of course Hulk Hogan famously claimed it was offered to him. Mm. And he said he couldn't do it. Aronofsky said, no, that's bullshit. And every wrestling fan said, yeah, we know, Darren. It's Hulk Hogan. (laughs) Darren, you're fine. Don't worry. (laughs) And if you were to cast... An actor in 2023 to star in The Wrestler, if you were to remake it or whatever, who would you cast in it? And if you were to cast a wrestler from 2023 to play Randy the Ram Robinson now, who would you cast? Okay. But we'll start with the first one. Are there any wrestlers from around that 2008 period that you think could have played Randy the Ram Robinson? Maybe Hulk Hogan. So the more I've thought about it, my answer to questions one and three are, are the same. Oh, okay. And that's Dustin Rhodes. Oh, okay. Uh, I think in 2008, The Shield weren't at their apex then, but um, The Shield weren't far off. You know, he had been, like, the chosen one. He had succumbed to drugs and stuff like that. So he's good there. And now you look at 2023. He could play the band that's had it all fallen apart because he's got that life experience. But I'm almost more comfortable with 2023 Dustin Rhodes because... He's been sober for so many years and, you know, it's not yeah. it's not like drunk Scott Hall in WCW. It's just a man using life experience yeah. to act, if you see what I mean. That's someone else who could have played Randy the Ram is, is Scott Hall, I suppose. Yeah. Although, obviously, in 2008, he could have. Mm. But again, he wasn't in the right frame of mind. Yeah. I get where you're coming from with Dustin Rose. I think in 2008, was he, was he in recovery at that point? Was he in WWE or was this like his bloated black rain period in tna or yeah i think he was in his tail end run of tna so he might not have been in the right frame of mind curious one trying to get the right combination of age and look 
and, as you say, state of mind. And charisma. And charisma, yeah, of course. Because I do think that maybe Hulk Hogan could have done it if you direct him well enough. He, he is, when you see him... No, when you see him, like, out of character talking, he has that... Low down. Here you go. Hey, brother, how's it going? But he has got that easygoing California surfer charm that he that he was growing up. Yeah. And you could play around with that. I don't think it, ultimately he would have had the chops to do the scenes like with... It would have been very hard to get out of Hulk Hogan, him crying to his daughter on the beach front of an old, yeah. you know, closed down New Jersey pier. Again, symbolizing the old broken down people that used to populate you know the past glories of that place yeah as a performer as an actor i think roddy piper could have done all of that but he couldn't build himself up to that physical aspect if that was a requirement yeah that they needed to have that physique piper could not have got there he could barely you know he had a good physique but he didn't have an incredible one even at his peak in wrestling. Yeah, he was never like he was never a bodyguard. You're right, but like he had that presence where you could sort of get away with it. Uh, I don't know if that would translate to like a cinema goer's idea of a wrestler, though. I don't know. Yeah, Ric Flair could have done it. I mean, this is a lot of it. This is the Ric Flair story in so many ways because Ric Flair is just never going to give up. Yeah, being Ric Flair, Richard Flair died years ago (laughs) Mm. or Richard Flair's the guy that gave him the heart attack and he still went on and wrestled exactly I mean he nearly did it didn't he in his last match he nearly did do a Randy the the way to the end oh that whole horror show Jesus so if you were to make the 2023 version of it now it would be curious because I was wondering like would you have to make it a period piece and they did think at one point of making it uh, film set in the territory days because they couldn't do the big production bells and whistles of a WWF show. Mm. But if you set it in the territories where you can do it in the smaller arenas and, and cover up some of that, which is why it'll be curious to see how they depict things like the Sportatorium in the Iron Claw movie. Yeah. But they like said the problem is when you do anything else in period, then that would mean every bar scene, every then every place they were in outside of the wrestling arena would have to be done up to period. You can't just drop into a bar and film there. Yeah. And obviously this was, this was low budget because they could only get, because they have Mickey Rourke. It's like, well, if you get Mickey Rourke, you're not getting the money to make a, you know, an impressive looking movie. Yeah. But so could you do it now as a period film, like just set it in 2008 or even do it in the territory days or, Do you place it in 2023? Because the 2023 wrestling world is a lot different. The convention circuit's maybe not quite so tragic. Yeah. And instead of it being someone whose peak would have been the glory days of the 80s, if you were to age it up appropriately, it'd be someone whose glory days were in the Attitude Era. It'd be someone like Billy Gunn, I suppose, if, if AEW wasn't around. And there's no one really of the main event level I can think of that's that that tragic now or at least that's alive i suppose like Mm. i said like aesthetically billy gunn's the perfect guy to play randy the ram now yeah again i don't think he has the act he doesn't have the acting chops the obvious person to cast for the best actor possible to play a wrestler would be dave batista yes he's the best he's not you know 
out of him, The Rock, and John Cena, he's probably the third biggest movie star, but he's the best actor out of the bunch of them. If yeah. any wrestler is going to win a, a, a might win an Oscar or get nominated for one, it's going to be Dave Bautista. His performance at Knock at the in Knock at the Cabin this year was a real like critics were properly like, oh, we like this guy. So I think they're kind of looking for him to have a big movie in the near future. Yeah. I would not be surprised if some if some director's going to take a massive punt on him and he does something spectacular in the next couple of years. Yeah. Like, who, like I'm trying to think, because Dave, Dave's, Dave is obviously the right answer, but it's a little too on the nose, so I'm trying to like put another one in there. can't think of many of the like, big, big guys. I think Dustin Rhodes was a good shout. The only problem is that physique-wise, he was never an impressive physique. Yeah. Again. So that's your letdown. Well, Triple H, if he could do it acting-wise, and obviously I guess he couldn't do any of the in-ring stuff anymore. Mm. And obviously it doesn't just have to be a blonde guy. You can put a wig on. I'm pretty yeah. sure that wasn't Mickey Rourke's hair. Although, yeah. again, that's what I love. Like those those slice-of-life character portrayals where you just see them getting about. And just those scenes of him with all the foamy hair and like a, a pink shower cap on as well. Or, or little pink pegs. It's just such a wonderful little character moment. Yeah. I think we kind of covered the, our bases there with the wrestlers. I think your pick of Dustin Rose probably is the closest one. Yeah. Like, if you get Dustin Rhodes' performance ability with Billy Gunn's look... I think you've nailed it, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. As an actor, like, just a regular actor, I don't know. The problem is they're all too beautiful still. I'm, I'm having a blank. I can only think of skinny guys, and it's really annoying me. Yeah. Chris Pratt's got the physique. Now he's come up a bit, but I don't know if that'd work. They, they all look too young, though. Yeah. They've all got the Paul Rudd problem, haven't they? If you could take... Leonardo DiCaprio could have been a really interesting one, actually. That'd be, that'd be I don't know how tall he is. If yeah. you could take Tom Selleck around the time he was Richard in Friends, that'd be quite cool. But obviously, mm. we're way too yeah, advanced for yeah. that. That'd be a good shout. But someone like that, someone tall who's got presence, and then you can build... Well, obviously, because of their acting ability at that level, you can build around the rest. How about Liam Neeson? It's not the worst idea in the world. Uh, obviously, you know, with the accent, you can, like, you know, build, like, a Irish-American. If you did it territory-style, you could build it like an Irish-American guy. He's too old now, but Jeff Bridges in the past might... Because he would have definitely had the charisma, but also sort of that rock-and-roll downfall element to him. Yeah. Like, he did do A Star Is Born in the past, and that is kind of what Randy the Ram is in the wrestling world. Mm. The equivalent of that character. The Bradley Cooper, I guess Bradley Cooper could be one now. Yeah, <sighs> Too, too pretty. I don't know. If you watch him in A Star Is Born, you can argue that, that he might be the best one that could do it. Mm-hmm. He has got that sort of alcoholic puff and bloat. You can you can do stuff to their skin to make them... You know, you know Brendan Fraser didn't get that fat for the while. He was a bit heavier back then. Yeah. He's, he's started to slim down now, and his hair's magically started to reappear all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a fun one to cast. And Marissa Tomei and... Evan Rachel Wood, you know, there's all sorts of women that could uh, play those roles brilliantly. Just, I mean, Marissa Tomei could still pull it off, to oh, be yeah, honest. Yeah. It was fascinating with Marissa Tomei, obviously, the kind of the, the, the key thing about her now is she's still ridiculously good looking at, like, however old she is. Yeah. He, I, th- I think you might have alluded to it earlier how... For once, like, nerdy neckbeard internet guys were, like, upset at how good-looking a woman was that was cast in a role. <laughs> guys complaining, I do not want to fancy Aunt May. 
This is wrong. Ah, adapt or perish. I, I, I think with you, with obviously Tom Holland being youthful, even more sort of youthful Spider-Man, I think it's sort of like sewed in quite well. Mm. Robert Downey Jr. could have done it, but he's very short. Yeah. Ben Stiller's physique in Tropic Thunder's not bad. Ben Affleck could do it. Ben Affleck's a good shout. How have we not mentioned the one we compare, like that we say John Cena looks like all the time anyway? Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, too short. He's five foot eight. Ah. And I don't think he's got that bombastic, like, over-the-top charisma either. I think we've all had a lot of fun. Of course, you, you know, Randy the Ram doesn't have to be white either. That's true. Let's get Idris Elba. Again, too good-looking, though, with Idris Elba. Yeah. Idris has kind of done a version of that. He did it for Netflix, that uh, fallen DJ that was trying to relight launch his career. So he, he's kind of done a similar story i can't remember the name of the show uh people look at imdb it quite easily it's something something charlie he's called charlie in it but i can't remember the full title what did you think of marissa tomei and evan rachel wood's character in particular marissa tomei i suppose because obviously he's making a statement with the two different types of ways that people have to use their bodies and are objectified Mm. in mickey raw's cases through going through glass and barbed wire yeah Marissa Tomei's character's case it's exposing herself and she even has a gimmick name as well and but although she again has that separation of worlds because she does have like her stage name and then her real name which is what she wants to be called by when Mickey Rourke sees her outside of the outside of the bar I see Cassidy her stage name yeah yeah and again it's that thing that Randy the Ram can't live outside of kayfabe because she does the whole being all flirtatious and interested in him in mm. the bar, he feels like, oh, she must mean it, you know? Because <laughs> we hear her trying to do, using the same voice and the same put-ons to those other guys that are rejecting her. Yeah. And I remember actually listening to an interview with Mr. Kennedy slash Mr. Anderson around this time, and he said his biggest complaint about the wrestler was that the most unrealistic bit was those people refusing a dance from Marissa Tomei. <laughs> Because she was too old. Yeah. I think Pam is 90% Ayatollah and 10% uh, Randy the Ram. <laughs> she's, she's, she's trying to build her life. She's trying to like move somewhere, like, to, like you know, set up a good life with her kid, her kid going to the good schools. But mm. when she gets rejected, it hurts. And it hurts. Yeah. It hurts her on a professional level as well as a personal level. Those, those little last vestiges of Cassidy hanging on but pam's taking over in her life i don't know i don't get the sense that cassidy was her life or has been her life for a long time if you mean like in real life she'd then go out and get drunk and party no 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 and i suppose her necking the beer is another sign that you know, yeah she has that wild past not like randy no what what i mean is she likes being a performer like that's 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 the world she knows. I mean, yes, we, she talks about like setting up a life for her her kid, but like I, I think it's very deliberate that we don't actually, to my recollection, she doesn't mention what other job she's going to do after that. Maybe the Cassidy part of her brain doesn't know. Like it, it, it doesn't know. It's still she's still not quite sure how to be the next thing, but she knows she has to be the next thing, and that's what separates her from uh, Randy. Because Randy tries to be the next thing, but he doesn't know he has to be. He doesn't. He just. He just thinks it would be nice, and he thinks he can spin the candle at both ends. 
but it just doesn't work for him. But but Cassidy's picked a side. Or the harsh way of putting it is that the reason she doesn't know what she's going to do is because the writers and the director don't care enough about her to give her that much depth. They can't be bothered to write that she's doing a nursing course or she's doing, yeah, I don't know, any other sort of course that gets her through the day. Potentially. That's getting her to that next step. Because what what if you have made it like an even-handed picture, an even-handed story that you followed Marissa Tomei's character as much as you followed Mickey Rourke's character? Could that have worked or do you think people would have just been... Like there are there are many many movies and many many times that many actresses that have had to play strippers, mm. and a stripper being used for a plot device is nothing new. I mean, we just mentioned Natalie Portman; she plays a stripper in Closer. Uh, I know that Lindsay Lohan played a stripper in the thing that was supposed to be like her big adult venture. Uh, Rihanna played a stripper in uh, Valerian and the Planet of a Thousand. You know, Choke, one of the first high-profile roles that Gillian Jacobs had. She was a stripper in that. And there's an obvious seedier element to it. And even, again, in the the behind-the-scenes documentary, they're kind of aware that the the stripper with a heart of gold was very much cliche, but part of it was that wrestlers in their research, and I guess this is probably true, of Randy the Rams' generation, did go to the strip clubs after the show. Yeah. And that was where they partied and hung out and maybe found their kindred spirits. So they were kind of aware of the... But but again, the, the cross irony of it. And I did love as well her mentioning uh, Jesus and that she's got... She loves the passion of the Christ. And says, you'd love it. They beat the hell out of him. <laughs> and there is obviously that Christ symbolism in Randy the Ram throughout it all. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder if the reason that they had him do the way that he does the Ram Jam with his fists on his head, which is a, a weird looking move. I couldn't quite, it was sort of like an elbow drop and a diving headbutt, but both, but neither. Yeah. I think it was just like, we need to give him something unique so he's not clearly Randy Savage. He's not clearly the dynamite kid. Because if he'd have done it like a diving headbutt, then you would have literally ended it with like the, the Christ pose. Yes. And maybe even Aronofsky was like, Bit on the nose. <laughs> that's two. Yeah, yeah. Even for me, that's a bit much. <laughs> Did you want more of Marissa Tomei, or do you think she was built in just about right? Like you say, she's got too much sense to never go too far into that world, so there's only so much time that Mickey Rourke can ever spend with her. And we, we, it makes it pretty obvious that the reason that she does think maybe there's something with him is that she's like, sees her son playing with his action figure and it's like, well, yeah. if, if he wants a father figure, then maybe it'll be this. And she doesn't know that he's so completely screwed at that point. Or at least yeah. she knows that he needs help, you know? No, I think we got the right amount. Um... Well, she she walks away as soon as she realises he's not going to change. Yeah. She's finished with him just as his daughter's finished with him. There's no Rocky seeing Adrian in the crowd moment. They're obviously alluding to that when he stands on the ropes and looks at the gantry and shows that she's not there waiting for him yeah and i guess in that moment he's like well this is the right decision to make Mm. it's the right decision for both people in a weird way because um randy randy couldn't really function in the real world because he's because he'd killed robin basically and he was about to do the same thing to himself and robin was about to kill randy yeah well in that moment if there was like a uk version of the wrestler. And I know you could do a, like a, a UK 80s wrestler, but I'm, I'm specifically barring that. 
What what industry do you reckon it could be? I, I've got like darts in my head or like snooker or something like that. And you could do something similar if you really wanted to English it up. I was going to say, any suggestions on your end? Snookers, snooker and darts are the obvious ones as far as you can have that person just hanging out in pubs and hustling, which was what Alex Higgins was doing at the end of his life. Yeah. You could definitely do it of basically just the Robbie Brookside story where he just stayed in the UK wrestling scene during the... 20 years that it wasn't <laughs> worth anything and just trying to do it on the Butlin circuit and living in a Liverpool council estate his whole time. Yeah. I mean, you know, you got movies like The Wrestle of Ten a Penny in the UK for like 25 years. That was, that was Yeah, that's main, true. That's true. That was our main industry. Grim, depressing <laughs> dramas. <laughs> Fucking hell. Have you ever seen Kez? <laughs> Oh, yeah, fair point, fair point. Your brother's killed your bird, you're going down the mines. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Where's... And you're ten years old. That's one of the reasons I think Billy Elliot's a little underwhelming in a sense, because, you know, he has a happier ending. Have you a curious one to make a sequel to now, I suppose, with Jamie Bell being older? Mm. But yeah. The, the British version of this would be just... Uh, you know, like I say, you could do a gritty British drama about a wrestler. Yeah. I thought you could do a fun one, like, with the Godfather Part 2 structure of him, where you follow, like, a dad in the old 80s circuit. Yeah. And his son in the shattered remains of what was left because of that generation just didn't change with the times. But we've had countless stuff set in the wrestling world in the UK recently, as you'll find if you listen to our DP episode. Yeah. That doesn't look like that's getting a second series, from what I understand, which is a shame. And we've got Fighting With Up My Family, which we will definitely cover at some point in the future. Yep, yep. Uh, but I've got one last question about this film, Simon. Yeah? Um, what did you think of the actual depiction of wrestling? As you say, you watched the first ten minutes, and that was maybe hefty chunk of all the wrestling that we see Uh, i feel like it's one this was the one where it's like i cite this when people complain about stuff that says oh well that wouldn't happen that's clearly not real like when black swan came out they go to real professional ballerinas and they're like well natalie portman's not as good as a professional ballerina what you you fucking think (laughs) (laughs) some people are just there's no pleasing some people yeah or I remember reading a New Yorker piece, and I think it was either the film critic or the jazz critic, complaining about the way that jazz is depicted in Whiplash, and in particular the idolization of Buddy Rich. And it's like no self-respecting jazz drummer would ever want to be Buddy Rich. <laughs> Things like someone being a pop star wanting to be Cliff Richard. You know, hey, <laughs> uh, you did quite well the, for a long time, did Cliff? But I think so many people that do that, with, and obviously had Jim Cornette's complaints as to how, you know, how grim it was, and other people's complaints about it was a very specific thing. But it's like, it's not ultimately. You, you'll sound like Mark Kermo with this. You know, Jaws isn't about a shark. This isn't a film about wrestling. This is a film about this particular kind of person. And one of the worlds that these particular kind of people get drawn into is wrestling. Yeah. And it's an interesting back world that not everyone knows about, but everyone's kind of aware of. Yeah. You know, not no one, not everyone listens to jazz music, but everyone's aware of what it is. And it's obvious that there's a lot more people that don't listen to jazz that went and saw and loved Whiplash. And maybe grew a love of jazz afterwards. Mm. Similarly, 
all the people that love ballet, those aren't the only people that went and saw Black Swan. And my aunt is proof positive that not all <laughs> are going to like it. Not all ballet lovers love Black Swan. Yeah. So it was like watching this, like, there's so many parts of it that don't quite work, you know? Like, Randy the Ram wrestles in a way that I don't think anyone from the 80s would have done necessarily. Obviously, they probably took the Terry Funk thing as the thing of the old guys doing the violent stuff, but even Terry Funk wasn't doing, like, the deathmatch wrestling stuff with, with literal staple guns and glass. Maybe he would have if he physically could. Yeah. But the level of status that Randy Rock, the Ram was supposed to be, like him doing a CZW deathmatch in 2008 was a bit of a stretch. But it doesn't matter that it's not quite right or that all these matches only seem to last about four minutes. Yeah. It doesn't really matter that much because it's using wrestling as a platform. So it's like... If so far as the depiction of a wrestling match, if you were to give me a rank it out of 10 for realism in that, it's maybe a 6 or a 7. There's some really cool stuff, like the way they film it with the dives and everything, and some of the changing and intercutting of Stuntman and Mickey Rourke. It's almost hard to see the, the misses in between. Yeah. I really like, I think, for me, you're, you're right, the actual wrestling we see, yeah, it's, it's fine. It's not spectacular. I think the key thing is... What, ah, oh, and I can't remember the name of the first guy, it's going to really bother me. The guy with the mohawk, he wrestles first. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Yeah. Necro Butcher and the Ayatollah. What they're all really good at, but obviously Necro Butcher for me is personally the best, is just leaning into that contrast of, oh, you know, I'm just going to calmly talk about how I'm going to staple you in the tits. Um, you know, you, you'll be fine. And it's like, no, you'll be all right, sir. As you know, this this sort of like seemingly polite, bearded man with glasses is talking to him and then it's a smash yeah. cut to uh necro butcher stapling dollars to his own forehead and you're like oh okay <laughs> yeah they get across the brethren nature of the wrestling locker room yeah although i do think there are parts of that that wrestlers joke about. i remember aj styles saying that the line from the movie that they quote all the time is one of the guys saying don't work the neck work the knee yeah and like, well we've got the knee we've got the neck which one have you got and they were like that's not what people say in the locker room. <laughs> so again, it's one of those things where it's like, maybe the full language of it isn't accurate, but the sense of a realism is you know, verisimilitude, I suppose is the term that you would use if you were a wanker, and <laughs> I very much am one. <laughs> it works. I like how you've took the power away from people there. <laughs> if you nitpick, you can do, but for the spirit of wrestling, especially the the more depressing elements of the past their prime wrestlers trying to still make a buck in 2008. It pretty much got it bang on. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Again, probably helping because they had beyond the matter sort of a, a, to build upon as a founding document. Yeah. Yeah. That, that helps them obviously massively, but it's just all in all, it's just a really well told story. I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. It's using wrestling to do a story about self-destruction. Yes. And that's what Whiplash does with jazz drumming in a way. And also abuses of power. And similarly, self-destruction in a different way in uh, Black Swan as well. And The Whale. Yeah. You know, it's like, films are never about what they're about. Yeah. If you know what I mean. But for what it does, I think it's probably still the best. Glow is the best production set in the world of wrestling that I think I've seen. The Wrestler is the best wrestling film I, thing I think I've ever seen. You know what I mean? Yes. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's been me. Is that 
you were right with that as well. So you're gonna watch some more Aronofsky now? Um, I don't know if I've recommend. If, I don't know if I come with recommendations or not. I was gonna say <laughs> you, like you'll have a time. I probably will watch the whale at some point. Uh, I, I, I don't know about the others, but probably the whale at some point. I would say watch Requiem for a Dream for your own opinion. I would say watch Mother because that is something else. Mm. Yeah, those are probably the ones. And, and Black Swan. You should watch Black Swan. Watch it with your mum. <laughs> I don't think that would go down too well, to say the least. So the art criticism is over. We are back to match of the week. Uh, we talk about the son of one of the people involved in this discussion. And now we're back to the father, the guy that started it all for these guys, although he was also very proud of his own lineage in the water maintenance industry. <laughs> Facing off against a recently departed... Very significant figure. Probably the most significant figure in wrestling since Antonio Inoki to have passed on. Where are we, Simon? And who are we talking about? We are at Madison Square Garden. And we are talking about a match between the American Dream Dusty Rhodes and the recently deceased superstar Billy Graham. They're wrestling for the WWWF Heavyweight Championship on the 24th of October... 1977 in a Texas death match. Yeah, baby. But until then, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you with some more Aronofsky recommendations, how can they do so? They can get in touch with me on Twitter where I'm selling a Simon Cross free, free for the number of actual wrestling matches the Ram takes part in during the film. My name's Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for the A in Academy. N for the N in not for you, Mr. Rock. <laughs> that's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox. If you put that gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lntyspod at gmail.com. Lntyspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. <laughs> Thank you for letting us tell you something. And until we meet again, the balcony is closed. <laughs>